0: Good morning, good morning. Now, it's possible that you arose this morning and you've already um, woken up to a reality that is less than what you would consider good. It's totally possible. It's totally possible that you're already confronting realities that you're like, yeah, it's not a good morning. Well, I want to um, invite you to consider that because God is good and God is great and God is gracious and God is present... Um, it is a good morning, even if that morning is the grief kind of morning. Mm-hmm. God's mercies are new every morning. Every morning in terms of, you know, the rotation of, this is where my, <clears throat> is it, Paul, is the earth rotating around the sun or is the sun? Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. We, hey, no, right. well, no, time, the earth rotates, how, but sunrise, we revolve what is, around. What is happening? When I talk about the morning... How do I describe that? Every time the earth rotates? Yes. Earth rotation? So, yeah. okay. the, our, so our part of the earth faces the sun, yeah. Yes, thank you. There you go. <laughs> <clears throat> Paul's back. I'm back. Thank you, thank you Paul. No problem. Um, so every time that happens, every time you perceive the sun to be rising, which, in fact, is not happening. I mean, the sun's not rising. Our perception is that the sun is rising, but it's the sun is not actually moving. It's stationary. Anyway, we're moving. Um, every time that happens, morning by morning, M-O-R-N-I-N-G, every morning by morning, right? And so God's mercies are new every every time. But God's mercies are also new every morning. The other kind of morning, the kind of morning where we're driven to our knees in sobs and grief that, yeah, it, you know what I'm talking about. God's mercies are new every one of those mornings as well. So as you enter into this morning, if you are mourning, if you're mourning this morning, good morning, good grief, good morning, all of it uh today's growing our faith verse of the day comes from James chapter four verse eight, and James is um, talking here to fellow believers, and so that's a critical that's a critical thing to note. He's not talking here to unbelievers. This is not a "Come to Jesus the very first time and be washed and be purified um, this is This is a statement to believers, to fellow believers. so consider that. As we hear James say, come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. For your loyalty is divided between God and the world. We, we want to be people who draw close to God, do we not? I mean, you're listening right now because you want to draw close to God. I get that. We, so how do we do that? How do we build and deepen our relationship with God? It begins by knowing God. And knowing ourselves and entering into a redeemed relationship um, with the Father through the Son by the power of the Spirit. Like, we know God because God has revealed himself in creation and then specifically in Jesus. God has revealed himself through his word, the word of the Old and New Testaments, and the word made flesh to dwell among us full of grace and truth. God makes himself known which means God takes the first step in this coming close business. Come close to God, the God who has already come close to you. And as you come close to God, God will come closer to you. Might be another way of understanding James 4.8. And then James says, you know, wash your hands. But the reality is we can't wash our own hands. Purify your hearts. Well, the reality is we can't purify our own hearts. You've got this, you know, divided loyalty between God and the world, James says. Why is it that we have fallen in love with lesser loves? Why have we allowed other things and other people to compete with God for our affections? You and I can't overcome the divided loyalty that we feel, um, the idolatry that rises up, Um But the good news is God has already done everything that's necessary for our relationship with him to be restored and renewed day by day. Jesus becomes for us the door, the point of access, the way back to the Father's presence, the way back into the Father's house, the way of life, the way of truth. So to come close to God initially, we've got to walk the way of Jesus. We do have to allow our sins to be washed clean by the blood of Christ, to be purified in him. So that's the initial beginning point of this conversation. But James is assuming that the person reading this, the person receiving this, has already accessed the way of Christ to a restored relationship with God. So James is talking here about the day-to-day, moment-by-moment sanctification that takes place in the life of a believer, Yes, you have come to Christ. You have entered, re-entered God's presence through the access that Christ alone has given you. Amen. But that doesn't mean God is done purifying you, cleansing you, bringing you by one degree of glory to another, more into the likeness of Christ. And that is the process of sanctification. And that's what James is talking about. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, purify your hearts. Your loyalty is divided between God and this world. And every single day, there's refinement to be had. So, what does that look like practically? There's a couple of ways to approach this: we draw near to God with an undivided heart. And so, in those places where you know your heart is divided, your affections are divided. Yes, you love God, but not God alone, not God above and beyond, not God in the in the foreground of of, of every thought and every word and every deed. It you know, we, we do love God with, an un, with a divided heart. We do. And so draw near to God and ask Him to undivide your divided heart. Draw near to God with the confident faith of a child. Jesus gives you entry and access, and so enter in. Draw near to God with a cleansed conscience. Let Jesus take every thought captive, let Him have your mind first. Because your lips will follow your thoughts and your deeds will follow your lips. So, practically speaking, draw near to God in prayer, draw near to God in the reading and um, memorizing of Scripture, silently sitting, attentive to Him, give thanks, honor God with your thoughts and your words and your deeds, honor God with your stewardship, time, talent, relationships, body, finances, every choice is a choice of stewardship. How are you spending your time today? How are you spending your energy today? Where are you spending your resources today? Every single one of those is a is an opportunity to draw close to God that God would draw close to you. All right, we all know at least one. In fact, we all know several. So, we all know a nun. No any. We all know a nun. We know someone who does not believe what we believe when it comes to the things of God. We all know somebody who, maybe they believe in God, but they are not um, actively engaged in any kind of fellowship with other believers. They are not um, religiously affiliated. They would not describe themselves as a part of a church or a part of the church. You know someone who does not believe. Maybe it's an atheist. Maybe it's an agnostic. Somebody who's like, ah, you know, I am. I'm sure there's a higher power out there. I mean, there's stuff that science can't explain. But, yeah, no, I'm not, going the, I'm not going the route of those crazy Christians, right? All right. You know someone. You know a nun. A person who describes themselves maybe as believing in nothing in particular. I'm, I'm spiritual but not religious. A person who considers themselves good without God. If they're honest, if they're really honest— They'll tell you they think the world would be a better place without organized religion because, in their view, that's what causes so much division. So, we're going to talk next about the nuns, N O N E S, the nuns in America, who they are and what they believe. It might surprise you. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. (music) When asked to describe their religious affiliation, 24% of Americans, 24% of Americans check the box for evangelical Protestant. I found that a little stunning. That's uh, that's almost one in four people in America who actually say they're evangelical Protestants. I, I found that kind of stunning. 23% when asked about their religious affiliation, 23% of Americans check the box for Catholic. That's 47% of people who say they're either Catholic or Evangelical Protestant in America. 47%. Hmm. 47%. Hmm. You know, a quarter of Americans saying that they were checking the box for Evangelical Protestant made me kind of excited. I mean, even 23% checking the box for Catholic kind of got me a little bit excited. But, you know, when you add those up, that's only 47%. That's less than half. I mean, I'm bad at math, but... I can figure that out. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. We're going to talk about the reality of the changing uh, sort of self-description in terms of the way Americans respond to the question, how do you identify You know, when it comes to your religious affiliation? 28%. More people than checked the box for evangelical Protestant. 28%. More people than check the box for Catholic, 28%. When asked, what is your religious affiliation, 28% of Americans checked the box for none, N-O-N-E, nothing in particular. Maybe they should be called a nopes, nothing in particular. Nope. So before we talk about the social implications of that, because there are many, as you can imagine, if you don't have any particular religious affiliation, then you have no community of people with whom you are um, gathering, with whom you are fellowshipping, with whom you are in significant relationship, nobody mentoring you in the faith, nobody walking with you on this, well, path of non-discipleship, but you get the point. So before we talk about the social implications for sexuality, for dating, for identity, for marriage, for the raising of children, for education, for social programs, for, for welfare— For, on and on and on. Before we talk about the social implications. I want to talk about the evangelical opportunity. And before we talk about the evangelical opportunity, I want to talk about, I want to have a feelings conversation. How must God feel? How must God feel about this? It's one thing to be rejected. It's another thing for somebody would be like, eh, nope, nothing in particular. Because a lot of these people say they believe in God, they believe in a higher power, just not anything in particular. No particular, nothing particular. So imagine you have a child. You've done everything for them. They have a flourishing and a blessed life. You're a good, good parent. Along the way, however, your child begins to take you for granted. They actually, well, deny personal nature of who you are. You become a functional piece of their world. Oh, yes, they still expect you to deliver the goods. They expect you to continue doing everything you've always done. But they never call. They never come home, even for the holidays. They literally treat you as a non-person. As if you don't exist. I mean, just give me my inheritance now. I mean, I mean you're dead to me. Now unless of course they need something or something goes horribly awry and they need someone to blame, well then then it gets personal. 28% of Americans many of whom would cheerfully sing God bless America at a ball game say their religion is nothing in particular. Yeah. No particular. No, no particular relationship with god the father no particular relationship with god the son no particular relationship with the holy spirit Meh, nothing in particular nope back in 2007 nuns in ones the nopes in my parlance made up just 16% of america but this week pew released a new study of more than 3300 us adults and 28% of them said, nope, nothing in particular. I'm a nun, any. Pew asked respondents if, uh, what if anything they believe? And they found that nuns are, well, not uniform. Some of them literally are atheists. They, they do not believe in, uh, in the existence of God. But most nuns actually do believe in God, generically, nothing in particular here. They do believe in a, you know, a sense of a higher power. Not everything can be explained by science. That is why they believe in God. Because not everything can be explained by science, they believe there must be something else, but nothing in particular. That, my friends, that idea, that sense that there is something rather than nothing, that's a shadow of a shadow of substantial faith. But it's not real relationship with the real God who really is. And that breaks my heart, and I'm quite certain it breaks the heart of God. Now, the nuns are not anti-religious, necessarily. Um, most of them, according to Pew's research, say, well, religion does a lot of harm, but it also does some good. So, what they really um, believe is logic and reason. And yes, because science can't answer all the questions, well, there must be something else, but nothing in particular. But I think that is a wide open door for evangelical opportunity. If 28% of the population is openly saying they have no active system of belief, no living, active, connective relationship with the God who is, then we need to understand them because we are missionaries already living in the lost culture of American nuns. We'll continue this conversation in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge, host of Mornings with Carmen. How good are you? You feeling good? You doing good? God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Goodness is the character of God and the work of God. But we don't always feel so good, do we? I mean, are you good? You feeling good? You doing good? Maybe you have a sense that you need some healing that you desire some wholeness. Our friend Susie Larson has a new book, Waking Up to the Goodness of God, 40 Days Toward Healing and Wholeness, and we'd like for you to have a copy. Faith Radio is giving away 100 copies of Susie's new book, and we'd like for you to have one. So enter to win yours now at myfaithradio.com. We want to know the goodness of God all the time. Connecting faith to life, Faith Radio. We're talking about some of the latest research from Pew Religion. You can find it at pewresearch.org. I'm happy to send you the direct link. Religious nuns in America, who are they? What they do believe. 28% of Americans now check the box. 28% of Americans now check the box for none. When asked a question about religious affiliation, they check a box, nothing in particular. Um, if you uh, If you want me to send you the link, you can text me, eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. I'm Carmen LeBurge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Uh good morning to each of you. Um sometimes it's good morning, like you know, because the sun rises. Good morning. But also um it's important as Christians to recognize that we grieve as those um who have hope. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. So this morning. As the sun rises and you wake up to the reality of not only a new day, but new grief in a new day for many, many people. I want you to be um, a witness. I want you to bear witness today to good morning. Mm-hmm. Good grief. You're going to be my good grief ambassadors today out there in the world that God so loves. All right. We're talking about um, new research from Pew. Um that has identified 28% is just an, an astounding percentage of the American population who no longer check the box for Christian, even generically Christian, um, no longer check the box for Catholic, even generically Catholic. They now check a box that says, I- I'm just going to be honest. I don't believe in anything in particular. Or I don't affiliate. This is about religious affiliation, not belief. I should make that clear. Because a uh, A fair percentage of these people actually do say they generically believe in God, but they don't believe in any specific system of belief in God, maybe not even any specific God. So, yes, there are atheists in the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, and yes, there are agnostics, sort of people who give intellectual assent to the fact that science can't answer all the questions and so there must be something instead of nothing. But, yeah, we can't know what that nothing is. We can't know what that something is. And it's it's maybe not a sum one, so let's not you know get too excited about the whole religion thing. So, atheists and agnostics, yes, a fair number of those among um, American nuns and ONEs. But um, the reality is, a lot of them do believe. Some of them even believe in the God of the Bible. But they are not affiliated with any community of believers. They are not a part of the church. And so let me ask you, is that even possible? Based on what Jesus talks about, based on the way the New Testament describes um, the body of believers, the body of Christ in the world today, built together as a spiritual house, the family of faith, is it even possible to be an authentic Christian and have no connection, no connection, to the body of Christ, to the body of believers. You and I are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. It's just operationally impossible for you to be out there all by yourself, disconnected from a religious community of any kind. So, um, a huge number, a huge percentage of um, of the folks surveyed by Pew say they... um they want to avoid hurting other people. And so that's, that's why they describe themselves as religiously non-affiliated because they view organized religions of all kinds as telling people, you know, that, well, you're wrong, right? They don't, they don't like this sense that uh, there's a right and a wrong and that it's, universal and that God has determined it. They don't like that God has said this is good and this is not good. This is within bounds, this is out of bounds. This is sin and this is righteousness. They don't like that. And they don't certainly don't want to tell other people how to live their own lives. And so that's part of the challenge, right? This uh this desire to avoid the harm of sounding judgmental. Well, that means we have a witness <laughs> we have a witness, and we have an opportunity because God is great and God is good and it is, for, it is for our good that God tells us the difference between what is good and what is evil. Like the knowledge of good and evil, well, initially we were only supposed to have a knowledge of the good. But Adam and Eve took upon themselves to do what God told them not to do and all they got, all they got for that, they got no more knowledge of good. They already had the knowledge of good. All they got for that was the additional knowledge of evil. All right. Uh, demographically, let me tell you a little bit about the nuns so you'll know the mission field into which you're being sent today. They are young. 69% of um, of those who answered the Pew survey with, you know, with I'm, I'm not anything in particular in terms of religious affiliation, 69% of them are under the age of 50. So when we say young in the culture today, We're just talking about everybody under 50 because, you know, the culture is actually getting um, both older and younger at the same time. Like people are getting older, people are getting older, like we're living longer, but the younger generations are also growing um, very fast. So a lot of it through immigration, which is an interesting note to all of this as well. Um, Nuns are young. 69% of them are under 50. 63% of them are white. So, so far, the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S-S, are young and they're white. And guess what? Most of them are men. So, if you just want a demographic to be shooting at, <laughs> targeting for your evangelical expression, targeting for your outreach and your prayers and your mentoring, uh, you know, your attention and your concern, young white men, that would be a good group to focus on. Young white men are increasingly answering the question about religious affiliation with none. They um they need the gospel. And what they're really yearning for and admit admit to longing for is friendship and community. So, let's start there. You and I are missionaries in this culture. Like this is the culture where we have been planted. And now to which we are being sent. And so what does that look like um, in the world today? Um, next up, our brother Daniel Bennett is going to join us. And I think that the, um, the question that I want to lift up here is, is, yes, it is political. Because we as a nation are very, very likely facing um, the same choice in 2024 in the presidential election cycle that we faced in 2020. And I think my question is, how are you as a Christian preparing for that and preparing for those conversations? And how, um, as a body of believers, as the church in the world, how are we preparing ourselves as individual congregations and as a collective witness and testimony? How are we preparing ourselves for um, this particular election cycle that is now fully upon us? Daniel Bennett's gonna join us next because ready or not, here it comes. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Bright and early, our brother Daniel Bennett is joining us today. He's actually uh, on assignment in Phoenix today. And so um, it is really, really early where you are. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us.
1: You know, thanks, Carmen. If I had been here before a few days uh, earlier, I think it'd be harder, but I'm still on <laughs> Central Time.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. I love that. Um, this is a uh, ready or not, here it comes conversation. Uh, you have mm-hmm. a piece at ChristianityToday.com addressing the the reality that we as a nation here in the United States are very, very likely facing a... Repeat in terms of who is going to be on um, the ballot. uh, In terms of, well, we don't really vote for president. We we vote for it's a crazy system. We vote for electors who are committed to voting for a particular president. So, but the two names that are going to be on the ballot are Donald Trump and um, and Joe Biden. Um, And so, is the church ready for a repeat? That's an excellent question. And if we're not ready, how can we get ready?
1: I mean, that is the question I think that that pastors and churchgoers are going to be wrestling with over the next few weeks as the Republican nomination pretty much wraps up. Um, I'm going to be speaking with pastors uh, today at this meeting with uh, or in Phoenix, and uh, I'm really curious to get their perspective on how their congregations are faring at this season, if they're noticing any differences uh, between 2016 and 2020 and today. But the thing that keeps coming to mind for me is how, you know, we as Christians, we occupy this dual citizenship in a sense, where we are, you know, citizens of this country, uh, concerned about the well being of our communities, but we're also citizens of heaven and have inherited this promise that's greater than any political, cultural, social victory could ever provide. And so we have this, uh, you know, now but not yet mentality. And I think that should color the way that we approach uh, our our political uh, enthusiasms, not our decisions necessarily, but our enthusiasms and the weight we place on political outcomes.
0: So um, let's dig a little deeper into that. I think that we we, we didn't do a very good job as Christians in this conversation in 2020. Um, We didn't do a very good job individually. We didn't do a very good job collectively. Um, this was incredibly divisive inside Christian households. It was divisive inside Christian churches. Um, what are some thoughts in terms of preparing ourselves as Christians? And for those of us who, um, you know, might be in a position of leadership in a church, how can we prepare our congregations? Um, sort of the, like, you know, ready or not, here it comes.
1: Yeah, so, you know, if we're not a pastor, if we're not in a position of leadership, it really does come down to I think how we tend ourselves and how we tend our relationships. Uh there is wisdom I think in in viewing political decisions with a certain sense of urgency. Uh otherwise, you know, we people elections have consequences, I should say, right? These are real things that happen. Um but when we talk about the decisions that our that our fellow Christians make, in the voting booth and then have the tendency to if we disagree with them to consider those decisions either you know at the worst case evidence of a bad or at the best case evidence of bad character or at the worst case evidence of abandoning one's faith yeah. i think that i think that really becomes a problem for unity in the body of christ people make prudential decisions when they go and vote when they support a presidential candidate these are imperfect choices And when we are casting those types of language and vitriol against our brothers and sisters uh, for things that are absolutely secondary, non-essential issues to what it means to be a Christian, that does some serious, I think, damage to unity in the body of Christ. Now, pastors have a different responsibility here to shepherd their flocks, to shepherd their congregations, to speak into the issues of the day, but also to remember, and I think 98% ninety eight percent of the pastors do this really, really well to remember that their job of course is to shepherd the flock, not to shepherd a voting block. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's to juggle the competing political ideas of their communities. And the last thing I'll say is this uh, on this particular question um you know, I think Christians, especially in the evangelical tradition, we tend to think that at least the tendency is to think that we have a, a particular read, on the right way to view politics right we think we have good solutions and some of these solutions i think are good but then when we look at our brothers and sisters and other congregations especially in the black protestant church they have very different voting behavior than we do i think it's very dangerous for us to say well because black protestants for example tend to vote for democratic candidates they are some in their christian reasoning now it's not something we would do necessarily but uh I, I do think there's a danger there in mean, Black Protestants, if they say that about evangelicals, white evangelicals, all it does is spread disunity in the body of Christ. So there's a lot more we could dig into there, but that's my two-minute version.
0: I think that is really helpful. I think one, one of the realities that I face where I live, um, it's possible that Obviously, political individuals, so people who are holding a public office of some kind or another, you know they might be platformed at a church in a mm. in the context of a service of worship like that might happen but yeah. um the 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 finger pointing happens when let's say i don 't know uh a person who has brought charges against the former president in a particular um local um district, like Fulton County, um, that person stands in a pulpit and speaks in a church. And yes, people get very exercised about that. Um, And and I'm not I'm not saying that it's wrong to get exercised about that. But are we getting equally exercised when a person with whom we agree politically is platformed in a church where we live? Like, just like, shouldn't we feel the same way? About people in elected positions of of, of, of political people, yeah. people in politics. Yeah. I don't know. You, do you? I'm not even framing a good question. But, but do you? But, no, can you I, sense I, what I'm trying to get at?
1: Yeah. Do are we equally troubled when someone who agrees with us speaks from the pulpit in a church service or speaks on a particular issue with religious conviction, uh, as we are when someone who does that disagrees with us or says something? problematic to us. So, you know, if we're predisposed towards the Democratic Party, for example, do we have a problem when Democratic, uh, when people on the left speak in predominantly black Protestant and mainline churches, um, but we don't have a problem when Donald Trump visits uh, First Baptist in Dallas, because that's he's on our side. Um, I think Christian, I think Dan Dan Darling down in uh, down at the Land mm. Center in Texas has a really good view on this. I don't think, you know, he says uh, maybe Christians should be equally troubled by any elected official co-opting the pulpit for, for political purposes. Uh, I think that is the right perspective. I, I agree with that. that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree yeah, with that. that. I don't that's, think that's the a, right time and yeah. place. Yeah.
1: Right. So I think getting our priorities right, making sure that we're being consistent. One thing we haven't talked a lot about today is consistency. Whether or not our views and our attitudes are consistent across different, different circumstances, that shows maturity that that's, that comes from something other than the world's politics.
0: Mm. Um, I want to talk with you in a moment, but it's a big subject matter area, and so I want to save it until after a very brief break. I want to talk with you in a moment about um, a book that you have read and reviewed, The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, American Evangelicals mm-hmm. in an Age of Extremism, Um. Because I think that the conversation about evangelical othering, well, you know, <laughs> there's other evangelicals, right? That's a really important one for us to get our hearts and minds around. But we've got a couple of minutes here before the break, and so I want to raise a really big issue with you. I do not think it's okay to cut in line to get <laughs> your food at the college cafeteria just because you're late for class. What is going on with the okay. fast pass to class?
1: So it's funny. So JBU uh, instituted a new policy uh, that if you are running late to class or have a very short window between your two classes to grab lunch, they said, hey, just jump the line. Other other people will understand. And listen, if you're not in a hurry, you can just wait in line. Don't get upset. I joked with our cafeteria manager that this is a great social science experiment waiting to happen. I just kind of want to sit there and just observe. Now, to be fair, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and this is getting into the the behind the curtains of JBU scheduling, if you take a class uh, at 1130 and then another one at 115, you only have a 30-minute break to get from your, fir- your first class to the cafeteria, get lunch, eat it, and then get back to class. It's really not that much time. So maybe that was the spirit of this, Carmen, but man, as someone who is A, a social scientist, and B, Presbyterian, I have a really <laughs> hard time thinking this is going to go well.
0: Um, all right, so for those of you um, in in a similar situation, here's what here's my encouragement. If you're a person who is not taking one of those, you don't have a schedule where things are that tight. Here, here's what I want you to do. I want you to find a person who does have that tight schedule, and you're going to be their like lunchtime ambassador. You're going to get their lunch, and you're going to take it to a table, and and all they have to do is come in and sit down and have table fellowship with you. They won't have to wait in line. You will have already waited in line because you were getting your lunch anyway. So I think instead of a fast pass, there needs to be like a partnership. And I also think that that students with mobility issues, it's not like they can speed up and go faster. So Mm -hmm. I think that particularly, you know, if you know another student, a fellow student who's got some mobility issues... Like I want you to reach out to them and be like, there's just, I like sort of get it that 30 minutes is too short a period of time to get from, you know, building A to the cafeteria through the line, sit down, eat your lunch and get back to building B where your class is 30 minutes later. So how about I bring a lunch somewhere between buildings A and B and we have lunch together on those days. There you go. There you go. That's my, uh, that is Damn. Carmen's solution to the fast pass problem.
1: We solved it. <laughs>
0: I know. As you know me, I just want to be invited to brainstorming sessions, even though nobody, (laughs) nobody thinks that my presence is necessary at such things. All right. Hey, we're going to take a very, very brief break. When we come back, Daniel Bennett um, is going to share with us what he learned from reading a new book called The Kingdom, The Power and the Glory, American Evangelicals in an age of extremism, um, and he's going to make some observations with us that go beyond just the the review of the book and talk a little bit about evangelical othering. Do you have a tendency to, well, not my kind of evangelical. I mean, that's those other evangelicals over there. Are we evangelical othering today? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Maybe you've heard that Faith Radio partners with one child to Offer you the opportunity to sponsor a child living in difficult circumstances in a hard place. Well, when you sponsor a child supplying for their needs, you change a life. And when you change the life of one child, you change the world. Your one child learns that God loves them more than they can imagine and that God's got special plans for their life. Your one child gets help with school and is taught skills like leadership and how to even overcome poverty. Your one child gets nutritious food and vital medical care that can be life-saving. You might not be able to change the world, but you can, in fact, change the life of one child. Meet the kids. Find your child at MyFaithRadio.com. All right, continuing our conversation with Daniel Bennett. He is a professor Um, at JBU. He also blogs. um, The Uneasy Citizenship blog is what you're looking for. I can send you a direct link to the one I am uh, looking at today, where he's making some observations that go beyond um, his initial review of Tim Alberta's book, The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory. So I'm probably not having Tim Alberta on the show to talk about this book, although it is in line with um, with others who have written maybe similar books or on on this similar topic who we have platformed so one of the things mm. that i'd love for you to do is you know give us an overview, read us in um, on on what tim alberta's you know sort of thesis is um, and then maybe maybe share with us the the particular observation that you made in your uneasy citizenship blog about evangelical othering. I mean, it's not, it's not really, it's not Mike, it's, it's not me, it's those other evangelicals that are the problem.
1: Right, so Tim Albert is a journalist with The Atlantic and he came to prominence covering the uh, the Trump administration, really. I'm sure he was prominent before this, but at least became more well-known nationally covering the Trump, Trump administration. And uh, he was pretty critical of the Trump years uh, from an institutional and presidential uh, history perspective uh, and uh, the book begins with him attending a very surprising memorial service for his father. His father passed away unexpectedly after uh, Tim had just done a, a television hit It came out of the blue. And uh, when he was back at his father's memorial service, several people uh, who had attended the same church as Tim and his father, were the, pos- the father had been a pastor at an evangelical uh, Presbyterian church, Uh, they were criticizing Tim and and coming to him at his father's memorial and saying, essentially, what's wrong with you? Why are you critiquing the president? He was, you know, he's doing such great things for, for Christians. And Tim was just caught off guard by this and kind of flabbergasted by this. And so it sent him on this journey to try to is a very personal journey. It's a journalistic account, but there's definitely a memoir feel to this. Try to understand what uh, has has transpired over the last few years that led to that situation, right, where people were comfortable approaching him at his father's memorial service and essentially questioning his faith uh, for his political coverage. Um, and there's plenty of, carica- there's plenty of uh, coverage of evangelical elites. Uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. makes an appearance. Eric Metaxas makes an appearance. David Barton makes an appearance. Political leaders as well. But the most interesting thing, I think, in the book, and and, and Tim doesn't necessarily keep himself from doing this. I don't think any of us can keep ourselves from doing this for too long. There's a tendency uh, to look at our brothers and sisters in the church with whom we disagree and say, even if we're not doing it consciously, yeah. But they're they're the weird ones. We're the good ones, right? Um, I, I kept thinking to this passage in in the New Testament with uh, with the Pharisee. Uh, oh Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men, right? Uh, when we pray, we're supposed to be doing it from a position of humility and, and beating our chests, not out of pride, but out of out of uh, sorrow for our sins. And too much, and maybe it is the culmination or the combination of you know political grandiosity and our own tendency towards thinking we're the heroes of our story, to think that it's everybody else or it's that other community with whom we disagree that's got everything wrong and we've got it figured out over here. Isn't it great to be in the in crowd? So Tim doesn't do that exactly, but I think it's really easy to read a book like his uh, that's really critical of a certain element of American evangelicalism. And walk away thinking, man, those people are messed up. Uh, and you know, again, as a Presbyterian, I can assure you that we're all messed up. Uh, that doesn't discount real problems in the in the evangelical world, but I think it could cover uh, looking at ourselves with a more critical eye.
0: Um, I mean, there's a part of me that wants to ask, you know, you the question, and I'm not expecting you to answer this, but you know, like, there's this question, like, okay, well, is Tim Alberta a Christian? Um and I think that the same conversation arose ro- uh, arose when um when John Ward wrote his book. Yes. Um and for those of you who don't remember John Ward did join us. He's the chief national correspondent at Yahoo News. Um he wrote a uh, a book um similar in topic um at least uh at the at, at least in terms of what lies beneath um, his book is called Inside the Evangelical Movement That Failed a Generation, um, Testimony is its title. And John Ward gives the, I mean, he bears personal testimony to the observation that you're making about evangelical othering. I mean, there's just no question about it. And he is a Christian, um, and he is going to church, and um, but that doesn't mean he's not constantly wounded and shot at by other Christians. And I do, I think this is, you know, we've inside the household of faith, we've got to stop firing at each other. We got to, I mean, and, and I think this is hard because it's also true that there are false teachers and it is also true that the spirit of the world is in the church. And it's also true that not every, you know, person who says Lord, Lord is entering the kingdom of heaven, yeah. but I'm also not the person to judge that question
1: particularly when there's disagreements stemming from political decisions that we that we're making and i mentioned just a few minutes ago political decisions and decisions on whom to vote for these are prudential practical okay, wait, decisions okay wait you have to define that, we make. that.
0: Can can you oh, define that? Because the, you've used that. Well, you've used I'm that word twice. And I no, no, I wrote it down the first time and I didn't say, OK, isn't prudential like a company that provides insurance? Isn't that like a financial plan? <laughs> what is a prudential yes. decision? I don't know what that means.
1: Yeah, I'm using the term to say these are decisions that we make based on the best evidence that we have based on the situations in front of us. These aren't decisions oh, that are necessarily. Yeah, yeah.
0: Oh, prudence. Yeah, oh, good. Okay, good.
1: that's much. So, better uh. Yeah. So so we make these political decisions oftentimes with faulty choices, knowing that, well, if I vote for this person, you know, he's done some stuff wrong or this person, she's done some stuff wrong. Uh, so we're making imperfect choices. Right. It, it goes without saying and I hate this. I hate this uh, analogy sometimes, but Jesus is never on the ballot. Right. So every choice that we make is going to be flawed in some way. Um, and it becomes such a danger When we look at people like Tim Alberta and think, well, he's critical of my leader, so therefore there must be something wrong with his soul as a a Christian person, Mm -hmm. rather than just saying, well, he's a Christian, but he made some different choices than I do politically. And that's that's okay, right? We we can do that. Now, listen, this isn't the first time in the history of the church there's been divisions, right? I mean, <laughs> we go back to Acts, and, and arguably those divisions were a lot worse than our divisions. Um. So, and and the point is, I think this, right? There's never going to be perfect unity in the body of Christ, right? It's something we strive for. Um, but we have to keep those disagreements not only rooted in a Christ-like way, but also focused on, like, Uh, fencing what it means to actually be a Christian in the context of orthodoxy, you know, if you can affirm the divinity of Jesus, the bodily resurrection, all these other things, then who you vote for in 2024 isn't going to make or break your faith, okay? These are decisions you make, hopefully, with the best information you have in front of you, and we're going to make mistakes, but we have to be gracious. We have to be uh, loving, kind, gentle to each other because that's who Jesus is to us.
0: I'm so good. Um, I'll just confess, uh, you know, my mind is um, is still in need of refinement because now that we've talked about prudence, all I can hear <laughs> in my head is wouldn't be prudent. Wouldn't wouldn't be prudent. What? That's it. Now
1: the Dana Carvey. Yeah, sure. And that's
0: what I'm saying. And now sure. I just have it rolling around in my mind. It's come not. On, I'm, I'm not on, e- I'm not eating any more broccoli. It wouldn't be prudent. I just it's killing it's me. up for you. I know, <laughs> I know. Okay. Have a blessed day today. Um, as you are speaking with pastors in Phoenix, um, appreciate what you're doing with the American Values Coalition. Uh, tell everybody I said hi, um, and yeah. uh, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Carmen. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So, um, prudence. Yes, not a character. Um, not a not a walk off line on Saturday Night Live. Actually, a virtue to be cultivated. Um, as we as Christians living at a particular time in a particular culture have to make political decisions. Like it's, you do have not just the right, but the responsibility. And so um, preparing ourselves for thoughtful conversations in the public square and then preparing ourselves, you know, to make very, very hard decisions based on prudence. Yeah, there you go. We got another hour together up next. This is Mornings with Carmen.